Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, we are going to begin, and uh, we, as, I, as has been noted, we're trying to finish up one section, move on to another. We're kind of at a good, I don't know if it's good or not, we're at a transition point where there are some some parts here I'm going to try to speed through a little bit quicker. We are approaching kind of the last section of the book of Acts. It goes all the way to chapter 28, but as we get to what's kind of the last section, that is when Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem, and then there are going to be a series of trials, and ultimately when he appeals and wants to go um, to, to Rome to have Caesar listen to his case. This is the last portion of the book of Acts. And here, as we're at the middle-ish end of the third missionary journey, it gets a little bit tedious, and the, the return on studying for our purposes is rather low. A series of, of sections that are kind of like the travel log that says he stopped here and then went here and here and here. Um, I We could put up a map and you can look at all of those places, but um, other than increasing your knowledge of the geography of the Mediterranean, I just, I don't see a lot of payoff there. So I'm going to try to speed over those sections. So with any luck, we'll be in chapter 21 when this is all through. But before that, we do have a section that I can't speed through as much. Um, 19 verse 21. This is going to be about a riot that happens in Ephesus. So just preceding this, Paul begins his ministry at Ephesus, the third missionary journey. He's going to spend a little over two years in Ephesus. For three months, he begins at the synagogue, and he is able to do that ministry there for three months, which is a considerable time. In some places, he's only in the synagogue for a matter of weeks before he is chased out of it, sometimes not even a week. Uh, we had the episode on... Uh, where he encounters some disciples of John. And the, the short summary of that is it's very confusing and it's hard to say a lot of things there. We would like to know a lot more than Luke uh, tells us about. But what we do know is that Paul brings the gospel to them and the 12 in number, it doesn't seem like an accident. It seems like this is, you know, the, the beginning of that church here in Ephesus. But after the three months in the synagogue, he goes to a public lecture hall in Ephesus. So again, he does the normal thing. Once he can't go to the Jews, he goes to the Gentiles, and he has a very fruitful ministry there, and he is able to stay there for this, like I said, about uh, two years. So even though he was having the pushback among the Jews, here apparently, unlike other places, he does not feel so threatened by the Jews that either he is forced to leave or the disciples say, 
Paul, you can no longer stay here. It is not safe. Instead, he seems to have uh, quite a bit of welcome. Ephesus is a major city, a cosmopolitan city. And so there are a lot of different people here. There are people who are always kind of coming and going either through the seaport or else going from the seaport inland. And so, um, Paul is able not just to teach in Ephesus, but the, the word of God is going to go out from Ephesus to some of the cities here in Asia Minor, uh, specifically, and I think I mentioned this before, the city of Colossae to the, to the Colossians, that group of Christians. Paul himself didn't um, go to that city as far as we know from Luke's account, but that would have been a place where people from Ephesus could have traveled by land back and forth to Colossae and the word gets out to them. So uh, that church is probably there because Paul spent such a long time in Ephesus and had this opportunity for the word to, to get out there. And then we had the op- the kind of weird thing, the sons of Sceva, about how other people there, uh, again, a Gentile culture, a culture of magic, They see Paul doing things that to them and their understanding look like magic, and they do what they would do otherwise with other magical forms. You learn the incantation, you learn the what is it that they do, and you try to do it yourself. And it may or may not be successful, but it's comical here that they have no faith in Jesus. They're not disciples of Jesus. And so they utter Jesus's name uh, to these evil and unclean spirits, the demons, and the demons basically mock them uh, because they aren't Christians. You, you don't have the right to use that name, which again is uh, that reminder. We talked about this uh, uh, in church that, that the heart, that where is their heart? Their heart was not in this. They are just going through the words, going through the motions, and that is, is not enough. Spiritual warfare is a very real and serious thing. It is something to take seriously. Well, they weren't really in it for spiritual warfare. They are just trying to make a buck. We've seen this again where magicians see the powerful acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, and they want to get in on that too. All right, so that gets us to this interaction with some of the local idolatry trade. So there's a a man here in uh, named Demetrius. Uh, He is a silversmith, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. And uh, you can Google uh, Artemis or uh, idols of Artemis if you want, and uh, you can see examples of them. Archaeologists have, have dug these up. The iconography is very interesting for Artemis. Um, we don't understand it fully, uh, what, what, is all, what all of the things mean. If you look at her, she looks like she has hundreds of breasts on her which is a little weird. Um, and is that a, a sign of fertility? Uh, you know, what our archaeologists and, and people that study the, those ancient cultures, they, they try to figure some of that stuff out, but it's, it's just kind of jarring and, and a little bit weird to us. Again, to think that they make these statues, they believe this is their God, and they worship this. 
That was a huge part of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city that the primary god, in this case a goddess, was Artemis. And they took this very seriously. This was like money is tied to this because the big building that they have to worship her, the temple, that costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of resources to put that together. You as a city have to decide that this is where you want all of your resources to go to rather than, you know, simply feeding people and, you know, building schools or libraries or that kind of thing back then. It's, it's an in dedication to this goddess Artemis. So, Demetrius here, who's a silversmith who makes some of these idols of Artemis, this is not just an, an ordinary thing. Now, this would have probably meant he was a very important person in the city. And so when he starts to make rumblings about Paul, there's every expectation that the people are going to listen to him. Um, but he knows this is a big city. There are politics. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so the way that he's going to bring about his case is, is very clever. So what's going on? Uh, this is verse 23. There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Here's that reference again uh, to, to Christianity called the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little uh, business to the craftsmen. So he's connected to other parts of the economy. This isn't just going to affect him. So what does he do? He gathers them all together, all of these craftsmen with the workmen in similar trades. And he says, men, you know that uh, from this business, we have our wealth. This, this is how we survive and not just survive. We, we make a pretty good living. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Now, it could be that he is um, speaking uh, in hyperbole. He's trying to make Paul sound as bad as possible to make sure that people uh, are on his side so that they're sympathetic to Demetrius in his case. But again, the evidence has kind of been there that this is true. Paul has been all over Asia. He has been traveling around. Now this is his, his third separate journey. And he has been turning people to faith in Jesus. And this produces a great effect on their way of life. Some of the things that they used to do, they're going to stop doing. They're not going to be going to the temple of Artemis anymore. They're not going to be buying any of those idols anymore because they know that Jesus is, is the one true God. Jesus is the king above all kings. So while there may be a little bit of hyperbole, I think there's a lot of truth to what he is saying so far as well. Um, and so he, he continues uh, that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not gods. Now, obviously, it's not just Paul saying this. this. This goes back to the Old Testament, right? You shall have no other gods. Don't make for yourself any idols uh, of human likeness. That's, that's not who God is. 
Um, and the prophets were very fam- for, famous for this as well, because over time, the Israelites did exactly this same thing. May not have been Artemis, but they fashioned gods out of their human hands, and uh, the prophets mocked them, like, you, you, you made a god out of that piece of wood, and, and you're also going to make something else that's uh, consumable, you, you throw away. Uh, it's you know, it's, it's all the same. It's just wood. This is, this is no God. This is no power. The, the real God, he is the powerful one. So what's the problem? There's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. So he starts with the most important thing to them. Guys, if this Paul continues, we're going to not have jobs. <laughs> we are going to lose our livelihood. But And that should appeal to them pretty quickly. But I think he also realizes that just because we're going to lose our wealth, why should other people care about that? You know, they're, they're concerned about their own livelihoods. They don't necessarily have to be here to support ours. And so at the end of his little speech, he kind of expands the circle. He's like, the, the great temple of Artemis. This is our claim to fame. This, this is why all of those tourist dollars come in. This is why everybody thinks that we are an important city. If we turn away from Artemis, who are we? This is, this is our identity. This is our civic pride. And so he tries to appeal to a mass group through looking at some of these other ways of, of playing at their heartstrings. Uh, are, you, are you a patriot? <laughs> do you want to make Ephesus great again? If you do, you need to support our idolatry business. This is why we are who we are. And Paul, of course, is upending the world in, in their way of looking at things. He's saying all of that stuff it's, it's bad. It's wrong. It, it is the opposite of being uh, uh, faithful to God. It is being disobedience. Um, and so there's a very real threat. What Demetrius is talking about is, is absolutely true. The question is, can Demetrius convince everybody else whose lives may not be so closely connected? Because don't think for a moment that everybody there is like, this example of a faithful worshiper of Artemis. Just like with all things, yeah, there are some people that take this stuff really seriously and they are firmly devoted to it, but 80-20 rule. There's probably 80% of the people that, yeah, they'll, they'll do what they need to do when there's a high festival for Artemis. They'll, you know, throw their coin in the basket. They'll show up at the festival. If it means a day off from work, they'll gladly celebrate it. Um, but they may not be firmly devoted to it. It's especially those kinds of people that Paul is probably able to persuade that this Artemis stuff really isn't the way to go. So what's going to happen next? When they heard this, they were enraged and they started crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again, it's not just great is Artemis, but it's it's our version of Artemis that, that they want to uh, praise because that is praising them. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. 
But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Finally, we're to that point where the disciples are realizing, Paul, this it's now getting unsafe for you. They don't want Paul to, to come into this mass crowd because they know uh, the rules of the crowd are generally not going to be kind. Uh, and even some of the Asiarchs, these would have been uh, rulers of Asia. Ark, you see that, that part of the word, that means a ruler in, in Asia. That is what this area of land is called. So we have the mob, we have some of Paul's companions brought in, but we also have the, the governmental officials. So hopefully they're going to make sure this doesn't get out of control, even though it already sounds like it uh, is kind of going that way. Otherwise, this will be like uh, Lystra all over again. Um, so even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent, uh, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they had come together. So this is a, this is a great example of mob mentality, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, why are we here? Because they're here and we're all unhappy and dissatisfied. And once you kind of light a fire under people, you, you might have the force of their will, but there's a lot of ignorance. They, they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Um, quickly on the, uh, the theater here. Uh, you can do another Google search on this when you get home. The theater in Ephesus, there are still uh, remains of it. This would have held probably 100,000 people. Um, like this is, this is a big deal, okay? This is not just a, a few people, which also makes you understand how it would have been such a confused mess. Um, because although if you are sitting in the theater, uh, you can hear the people that are speaking on the stage. The people back then were brilliant and they knew acoustics. They knew how sound worked. And so even if you're in this theater without microphones or any of that technology, you can hear the people speaking to you, but if they're all in the stands, you know, it's, it's just chaos. You can't hear one person across from you, um, speaking. That's not how it's, how it's designed. Fact check. Fact check. So, in your notes, it says 25,000 versus 100,000. <sighs> so, I'll, I'll double check it. Okay. Yeah. There, there's, there's, there are two different places that I was looking at, uh, of the archaeological remains. Um, a lot of, it says a hundred thousand or 25. That's probably where I got the 25,000. I think I got the hundred thousand from a different source. So I'll, I'll double check a lot of, a lot of people. Yeah. Give or, give or take. And actually my study Bible says 25,000. Yeah. That's what's, what she's saying too. Same one. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people. <laughs> uh, it, if I wrote 25 and if it's there, we'll, we'll say that. But um, a lot of people are there. It's still confusion. It's a mob. They don't even know why they're there. And so finally, thankfully, some control happens, but not before. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted um, to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, 
they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Luke doesn't tell us what Alexander wanted to say or what he was there for, but read between the lines. What, what do you think Alexander was, was going to try to do? Alexander is a Jew. No, because he's a Jew. He wants to say, we're not with these people. Because again, remember, there is this general uh, disdain towards Jews. They, they are looked down upon because they are monotheists. They don't participate in any of this stuff. But the Jews were good at kind of just leave well enough alone. You don't bother us. We're not going to like tear down your temple or anything. But now people feel very threatened by Paul because Paul is not concerned about those boundaries between people groups. Paul is proclaiming the gospel not just to Jews, his own people group. He is proclaiming it and has been proclaiming it to Gentiles. And so they are experiencing that evangelistic effect of more and more of their people are now leaving their way of life and following Jesus, following Paul. So I think what Alexander is trying to do here is to separate Jews and Christians and say, yeah, let's be mad at him, but don't don't come after the synagogues. Don't come after us. We've been nice citizens. But again, the crowd is going crazy and they don't have a high opinion of Jews in the first place, so they're not there emotionally to like make distinctions. They're there of like, it's you Jews that started this in the first place. We should have like never tolerated you. And so for two hours, they, they do this. When the town clerk finally quiets the crowd, this guy was the MVP here. I don't know how, probably two hours, they, they started to grow tired. I don't know. Why are we cheering again? I don't know, but we're going to, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, he says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, if, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Wow. Again, he had, he had to be a very uh, powerful speaker to take the crowd in that fit of passion and to, to bring them back down to reality and logic and the facts. Like, guys, you're worried about Paul uh, ruining the reputation and, of our city. And he's like, nobody can deny the reputation of our city. Artemis is there. Artemis is great. We, we are that wonderful city. So don't worry about us losing that reputation. He doesn't get into the fact that, you know, trade, the, the idolatry trade has gone down or whatever. He just says, look, nobody can deny that this, this is, uh, this is who we are. But then he goes on and he warns them basically, right? What we're doing is wrong. We have a legal system, a legal framework that is set up, and this, this rioting is not part of it. So if Demetrius truly has a legal complaint, 
what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to go to the courts, and there the matter should be adjudicated. So he's, again, turning them to, look, we have problems all the time with one another. That's why we have a court system. So people don't just take things out into their own hands, and we have this cycle of you know, vengeance or what have you that will just uh, spiral out of control. No, this is, this is what needs to happen. But he also reminds them there are greater powers here, right? Ephesus is ultimately, like Jerusalem, a city under the Roman government, part of the Roman Empire. And if the Roman Empire officials, the proconsuls in this case, would see that we are taking things into our own hands, that we are living lawlessly, they will settle matters in a way where we don't get a vote. The, the army will come in and there will be peace forcibly kept. And, and none of us want to mess around there. None of us want to experience the wrath of the Roman government. So again, he, there's a veiled threat there. You know, he says, if we don't stop this, if we don't stop this mob mentality, um, much, much worse things will happen to us. And we will maybe not be known as the city of great, uh, Artemis, but instead of this great riot that Rome has had to, to squash. So, again, intervention. Paul really isn't involved in this directly, as we saw. Uh, his disciples try to keep him away from it. And no blood is shed. There, there is no um, beating or anything like that that Luke records. But we were pretty much on the edge. Once again, you get to kind of put this as a vote in Paul's favor, though. A vote in favor of Christianity. That the government did step in, in this case, to protect Paul, to, to protect the early Christians. Uh, there is that idea that the government was always against Christians, that, that the government persecuted Christians. And there are times and places where that absolutely is true, where that did happen. But the governments weren't always against Christians. Often the governments provided protection against Christians, the rule of law. And Paul would use that to his advantage where it was possible. But there were times when simply the mob just took control and there was not enough time. When we get to Jerusalem, we're going to find that this is kind of the, the way of um, Paul's life that, that becomes the, the norm kind of from now on, that he is now going to be in the legal system and he's going to be trying to do his best to, to work through it. The problem is the legal system isn't as good as you want it to be either. And there are always delays and one ruler will change into another ruler. And then that one inherits these legal cases. And they're like, I don't know what to do with this. We'll just let that case sit for a while. And Paul languishes for, uh, for quite a while in his trials. But in, in most of the cases, Paul may not have always got what he wanted, uh, that quick hearing and a definitive uh, outcome. But he was not always mistreated by, by governments, whether it's a local government or the Roman government as a whole. That is not to say there were not bad cases, but it's, it's a mixed review, okay? There's good and there's bad. Here, it turns out pretty good. 
However, we're into chapter 20 now. Um, one thing that I missed right before this is that Paul has indicated that his time in Ephesus is going to be coming to an end. And so he sent ahead a couple of his, his, his companions, uh, Timothy and Erastus, uh, to go to Macedonia. That's where he's going to be headed next. He says that he's going to be going to Jerusalem, but ironically, his path to Jerusalem is like backwards. Jerusalem is east of Ephesus, south and east. He's going to be going north and west. Macedonia is up here. Um, why is he going the wrong way to Jerusalem? Why is he taking this roundabout way? Uh, a couple of different things. It seems that Paul now is getting um, indication from the Holy Spirit of what the next steps are going to look like. And he knows that he may not be back to some of these places. And so I think he's trying to wrap things up or say some of those final farewells to commend them to God's grace, to let them know that, that God is watching over the church, that they don't simply need Paul. And if Paul's not part of the picture, the church will go on. Another big thing that we read about, not so much here in Acts, but in some of Paul's letters written at this time, uh, Romans is written during this time, Corinthians is written during this time. Um, he writes about the collection that he wants to bring to Jerusalem, that he asked those churches to raise a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. It seems that if he's now going to be going to Jerusalem, one of the reasons he's going to Macedonia is to collect that collection that he asked them to set aside, and he's going to bring it back to Jerusalem. Because as we note uh, in, again, some of the travelogue portion, we start to see that there are a lot more people traveling with Paul now than when he first began. And the people who are traveling with Paul are kind of like from all over the area. It was very likely that when Paul collected their offering, he also had representatives from those cities, from those churches come with him. Um, that not only keeps him above reproach, you know, that they all know that the money was not touched. You know, Paul wasn't using this for himself, but it was brought exactly to where they said it would for the purpose that they said it would. But it also gives those churches far from Jerusalem, some of some of which have no connection to Jerusalem at all, because these are Gentile churches. And before, Jerusalem didn't mean anything to them, but now they would start to feel their connection, that, that they are all a part of this, that the body of Christ truly is Jew and Gentile. And when they bring this collection that is very specifically for the Jews in Jerusalem, now Christians, that they know that they are all sharing this together as the body of Christ. Just as in that Jerusalem church in those early days, they brought everything together and they gave to those who had in need from those that had much. So in 20, he's, he's going now to Macedonia, which he'd already set about to do. He sent Timothy and Erastus there ahead of time. Um, he encourages farewell, departure. Uh, when he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he, he came to Greece. So Luke's boom. He goes to Macedonia, he encourages them, and then to Greece. Greece primarily would have been Corinth. 
Uh, Athens is a city of Greece, but we know that he, he doesn't write any letter to the church in Athens. He did go there, he did speak there, but Corinth seems to be where he spent most of his time when we consider Greece. It's a big city. It was there at the crossroads, just like Ephesus. From Corinth, the word would have gone out to more and more cities in Greece. And, uh, Again, looking not at the book of Acts, but at Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he may have been to Greece, to Corinth, already before on this third missionary journey that Luke didn't tell us about. Um, but like I said, if you read through the letters to the Corinthians, you hear about him like the last time I visited you and you try to put together the timeline and whatnot. It seems like this would have been another visit to Corinth so that he had been there, what, at least three times, not just the two times that Luke tells us about. But again, Luke's job isn't to give the biography of Paul. He, he's, he's on a mission here, and so he's just trying to get Paul to Jerusalem because that's the last part of the story that he wants to share with us. Um, he's there in Greece, probably in Corinth, for three months, but when a plot was made against him by the Jews, and he, he as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So again, from Greece, he could have sailed east back to the area that he was wanting to come, but instead he goes north. Macedonia is north of Greece and goes through that area. So we hear about uh, Sopater of Berea. So we remember the Bereans that he visited on his second missionary journey. Uh, Pyrrhus from Berea, they accompany him. Uh, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby and Timothy uh, and the Asians, uh, Tychicus and Trophimus. Um, by Asians, probably Ephesus is what is meant here because that was the, the place in Asia that was prime, his primary place. Um, all of these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Uh, again, you look at a map, Troas is north on the Asian coast. Uh, from Ephesus. That was the port that he first left to go to the Macedonians on his second missionary journey. Um, so while he sends those ahead, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. The next thing, so traveling, traveling, traveling. While at Troas, we learn about one of the worship experiences, which is a very kind of familiar story. It's a Sunday school story, the story of Eutychus. So this is interesting because we get a very small picture of what worship looks like. It happens on the first day of the week, Sunday. Okay, when, when is the time that we gather for worship? Sunday. So we, we can see again the early church. This is, it all goes back to that. And what is it that they do? They gather together to break bread, which could simply mean they had supper together. They had a potluck. But often breaking bread together is connected to the Eucharist, to the Lord's Supper. That these are all kind of one and the same. Not only would they have a meal together, but that they would break bread as Jesus broke bread. Um, and we know that Paul gave these instructions that wherever he went, he told them to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So breaking bread here 
Yes, probably they did have a meal together, but don't exclude the fact that the sacrament is there, that they were um, celebrating communion. And then Paul talked with them. So probably evening meal here, right? Uh, He intends to depart the next day. He prolongs his speech until midnight. Anybody got a calculator? How many hours is that? Anybody ever complained about how long the services are here? (laughs) Why was the sermon so long? I have never given a six-hour sermon. I haven't even given a five-hour, four... So, um, Paul here, why so long? This probably isn't the normal thing, okay? He probably does not normally give uh, a five-hour, you know, however long this is, uh, message. In fact, it's not even going to be done. We'll we'll find out. Probably doesn't normally do that, but it's it's because of where he is and what's going on. Again, this is for Paul. He sort of knows I'm probably not going to be back. He wants to give those final words of encouragement and strength to the people. And there's a lot of emotion, I'm sure, tied up in all of that. Uh, and it, it it goes on and on for a little bit. There are many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. So they're not in a synagogue They're not in a church. Churches, the buildings don't exist, but they're gathered in in a home, probably, and in that upper area. Uh, Homes, the the lower area is not really the the place to hang out. Uh, it It is the entryway, but the more comfortable part of a home is either further inland or uh, inland, in into the house or these upper levels. So this is obviously a, a pretty well-to-do person if they have a, a three-story um, a house, as we're going to hear. There's a young man named Eutychus, and he's sitting at the window, and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So he's gone to midnight. Eutychus falls asleep because he's not done. He keeps on going. Our five- or six-hour sermon isn't even over yet. Uh, And so here's the thing, what happens? He falls from the third story and was taken up dead. So he falls out the window, lands on the ground. He's dead. That's a three-story drop. Uh, And he wasn't probably bracing himself because he was asleep. Um, What's what's poor Eutychus' problem here? Your attention spans. It's your problem, people. You just, you need to pay closer attention. I've seen your sleepy eyes in a 15-minute sermon. Can't you even stay awake for 15 minutes? Eutychus here was awake for at least, you know, five hours. It was just once he got past midnight, it, it got to be a little bit difficult. Eutychus isn't chastised here, um, nor is Paul, for that matter, uh, for having this long service. Again, I don't think this is the norm. It doesn't usually happen. It just happened to be this kind of state of affairs. But it's understandable. It's understandable why somebody would fall asleep. They perhaps weren't prepared for Paul to come. They weren't prepared that he was going to speak all night. They've had a long day uh, of working, whatever. Um this, this person, Eutychus, is described as a young person, a youth, um, but we don't really know much more than that. Uh, he's, he's a growing lad. He, he needs his beauty sleep, too. The marvelous thing, though, is it, the, po- so the point isn't that he fell asleep. The point is what happened next. Paul goes down, he, he goes out, and he bends, bends over this youth, takes him in his arms, and he says, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had got up, 
uh, any broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So it doesn't even actually draw attention to the miracle. It's just he was dead. He fell out the window and, and you know, lands on his head or whatever. And Paul says, he's not dead. He, he's, he still is going to live. And then after Paul breaks bread with them and continues a little bit longer, and now it's daybreak. So we're, we're at 12 hours here, I think, right? Depending on the, how, how long night was and whatever, um, that the youth is, is awake. There's a, quite a connection here, I think, to the Old Testament to uh, the examples of Elijah and Elisha. Both of them performed miracles, not on somebody who had fallen out a window and was dead, but, but on a youth that they, you know, go into the, to the room and pray over them. Uh, I think Elijah, like, stretches himself out over him and they, the youth becomes a- alive again. Um, and so, again, you see the Lord's hand here in this. The Holy Spirit works in this, but um, for as marvelous as it truly is, Luke just kind of throws it out there as, oh, and when we were there, yeah, it got late and somebody fell out the window and died, but it's all good. He's he's alive now because, you know, Paul prays over him. They, they break bread and celebrate together, and you're like, what? In what world is this a normal thing that you just sort of throw in there? Well, in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, this just happens to be kind of a, a normal thing. So uh, Eutychus, we, you know, you, you could chastise him, you could get angry with him, but Luke in his narration doesn't. It's just, this happened, uh, and, and he's, he's alive. Uh, God, God saves him. So um, don't, don't let me or other people make fun of you for falling asleep in worship. And it, it happens. It, it isn't a great reflection of our devotion to God, but um, I've been there. I went through college and college, I did not go to bed very early. And once you're in that frame of living, just sitting and keeping your eyes open sometimes is a trial. And you get in various stages of life there will be times where sometimes you're burning the wick at both ends. Uh, sometimes you you aren't. Uh, but you just, you know, you, you go to bed at a normal time, but you can't sleep. But I don't know, something about being at church and uh, it's quiet and calm and just don't snore, okay? Don't, that, that's the distracting thing. You're not just, you're, you're distracting other people from worship. So, uh, so yeah, Eutychus, you, you remember that story well. It's, it's all about that that departure, though, I think, of Paul. Like, if he would not have been departing, departing I don't think you, you don't, you'd have this service where they're all gathered for so long. It's just they wanted every last bit of Paul that they could. And Eutychus could have gone home, right? If, if he didn't want to be in the presence of these other Christians, he, he could have been someplace else. But he wanted to be there, and uh, he, he is blessed because of it. Probably had an interesting story to tell from then on, but um, there it is. All right, so after Eutychus, we're, we're continuing, because like I said, he's, he's moving. So going ahead to the ship, they set sail for Assos, a city south of there. They intend to take Paul, so Luke is part of the we here. That's why it's we. They intend to take Paul with them, for that's what they... Um, uh, for, so he had a, arranged, intending himself 
to go by land. So a weird thing is happening here where Paul sends them ahead in the ship, but he's going to go by land to the next port. They're only going to travel by day in this section. Um, I looked up uh, a note and part of the, this is in the springtime. And here the sea, the, the way the, the weather and stuff is changing, the winds are really only there for sailing during the daytime and not at the nighttime. So they can sail at night. That is something Something possible to do, but during this season, it's really not productive. So they're going to sail by day and then go to the port at night and then the next day. So that's why they're kind of leapfrogging here. So they're not going to be traveling very far. And so it is possible to go by land and still meet up at the same place in the evening. One possible reason Paul does this is maybe the land journey gives him time to still talk to people along the way. Um, I, I don't really know. Luke Luke doesn't give a reason. Paul doesn't give a reason why he divides this up this way. Like, why didn't they all just go by sea? Why didn't they all go by land? It's just kind of what happens. Um, when he met us at Assis, they took him on board and they went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, they came uh, the they came the following day opposite Chios. The next day they touched at Samos, and the day after that they went to Miletus. So leapfrog, leapfrog, leapfrog. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. So if you follow this on a map, there would have been opportunity for him as he's going along the coast of Asia to stop into Ephesus. But he had made that decision I, I said my goodbyes. I, I can't go back. It would be uh, too hard for me or whatever. Except. He, I think he, either he has second regrets uh, on that or, or what, because at Mytilene, he is going to summon the Ephesian elders, that is the pastors. So remember, at every place that Paul goes, he seems to set up a structure if there wasn't a structure already in place. Jewish synagogues kind of had their leadership structures in place. So when Paul visited a city, there's already some kind of leadership there. If those people came over to Christianity, they you know could keep those positions, except now they're in charge of the church there, not just the synagogue. But as he's going to Gentiles, they wouldn't have anything like that. He would have to work with them to build up those elders, those pastors, those overseers. They're kind of called different things here, but um, we believe it's it's all the same kind of uh, terminology used for the same person. This is the one who's like their shepherd, the one who's in charge of spiritual oversight. Um, because Paul says as much as he meets them here and and mightily and Miletus. Uh, and speaks to them. So the next section, <clears throat> in verse uh, 18, uh, Paul uh, talks to them, and here are his instructions. He says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So again, here we learn a little bit more about that Ephesian ministry, even more than... Um, Luke told us about, because Luke has told us about the synagogue he meets there and also in that lecture hall. But here, Paul says, I, I was going door to door, house to house, uh, meeting with people that would hear this. Uh, and he was testifying to both uh, Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem and constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom, I gave, uh, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among, the, among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken and that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So uh, these are his last words to Ephesus by way of those pastors. And he really wants to encourage them because he knows that he, he, the whole church is commended to God's grace. But these elders, overseers, shepherds, they're the ones that are responsible. Paul's not going to be back. He, he's not going to be able to put out any more fires. So he, he shows them his own life. He says, this is how I lived. This is the example that I set while I was among you. This is what I was all about. This was not about self-aggrandizement. This was not about making money for myself. This was about preaching God's word, proclaiming that kingdom. And uh, he did so in, in ways that were uh, not easy. He talks uh, a couple of times about how he does this in tears. You know, he's giving him his whole self to this, and he wants these pastors, these shepherds, to know that it's now their watch. They are now the ones who are in charge. And it's not going to be easy. He warns them it's not going to be easy. He warns them about wolves coming. So the, the whole metaphor is there, right? That they are the shepherds, the church of God, they are the sheep, the flock, and the greatest enemy of, of sheep uh, in this culture, there might be other enemies of sheep, are wolves. And so are you going to be safe from those wolves? Well, whose job is it to keep them safe from the wolves? Sheep can't do it. They're sheep. 
It's not to denigrate the flock, but the shepherd. They're the ones who are responsible. They need to be aware of these things. And uh, they need to be teaching with that in mind. So to, to be able to teach the people so that they themselves would know what is God's word and what is not God's word. So that as other false shepherds, i.e. wolves, come and proclaim other messages to you, the shepherd can't be with you all the time. So the shepherds need to equip you so that you know, so that you know your shepherd's, the real shepherd's voice and that you aren't led astray by some of these other messages. Um, and that's as true then as it is today. There, you're confronted all the time by other voices than the voice of the one shepherd. Um, Jesus says that his sheep know his voice, and they listen to that, and, and that's absolutely true. But that won't stop the wolves from coming and trying to, to tear you away. And it's not always by threats of, of violence. Sometimes it's that, wow, that sounds really good. Like, that's a good way, that's an easy way to live. I would be a lot more popular. I would have a lot more friends uh, if I lived that way. People would not be angry with me if I didn't speak this way, but instead spoke that way. Um, this message sounds like this is the way and not what I have learned, that we are saved by grace or you know some other thing. And so we today as pastors still heed Paul's words. And we have to because... Satan's ways, they really haven't changed all that much. Um, the dangers are, are always there. And the flock needs to be tended to and, and cared for. And uh, we, just like the, these Ephesian elders, uh, at the end, we're, we're accountable to God. We're not always trying to be popular. We're not always trying to do what we think everybody will judge as right. Um, Ultimately, we want to be faithful to God and to his word. Sometimes that's easier than others. Sometimes we're better at doing that with tact and patience and compassion than other times. Um, but at the end of the day, Paul's words here are very important. There's one other important, well, I don't know if it's important, unique thing. In all of the book of Acts, this is Paul's only speech recorded given specifically to Christians. In all of the other speeches, he's either evangelizing, trying to make Christians by proclaiming God's word, otherwise he will be trying to defend himself, defend himself uh, speaking either in a, a legal courtroom or uh, speaking against some of those who oppose him. Um, so in other words, this section here is probably closest in tone and vocabulary um, to the epistles of Paul. Because all of those are written to Christians. This is what his speech normally is. So what is one of the criticisms of, of Acts? That some people think this is Luke's version of Paul, not Paul as he really is. Because if you look in Paul's letters, he always emphasizes this, 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 and this, and this. But here in his speeches, we don't really see him emphasize those things so much. Well, in some cases, I think those people are wrong, and he does talk about you know, some of those other ideas, but one of the reasons is that those epistles are all written to Christians, to the church, and all throughout Acts, other than this little section, 
he's never speaking directly to Christians. It's not that he didn't. It's just Luke didn't ever record that. Um, instead, he's evangelizing, trying to make the church or defending himself, speaking to a, another kind of an audience. So um, that's kind of interesting. And these are powerful words in that respect. Skipping just the beginning of uh, 21. 21 begins, he's just going to be continuing the journey a little bit more. So from Miletus, he's going to go to eventually Tyre. So that's in the northern region of Syria. From Tyre, he'll go to Caesarea. Caesarea, he meets a a character from the past that we haven't talked about for a really long time, Philip the Evangelist, that one who made the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip stayed in Caesarea, evidently, and so there Paul and Luke are able to talk with them, and no doubt that's where they shared that story about how uh, Philip conducted his life and his early ministry. And from Caesarea, then, they're going to be going to Jerusalem. Just before that, there are a few people that try to deter Paul from going to Jerusalem now that he's almost there because they know it's not going to be good. Um, there's talk about how they know this through the Holy Spirit. And so, again, the writing seems pretty much on the wall that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, it's going to be bad. The slightly interesting thing that people look at in this section is that Paul basically says, the Holy Spirit is commanding me to go to Jerusalem some people here are going to pop up who also seem to be speaking from the Holy Spirit because they know what's going to go on, but they are trying to deter him. And so there's this question, is the Holy Spirit sending mixed messages or are they divided? And most of the time, what is understood in this section here in 21, where uh, a couple of people try to deter him, is they know full well that the Holy Spirit is is sending Paul to um, a, a, a bad situation. They know that from the Spirit, but from their own hearts, they don't want Paul to experience that. Not unlike Jesus, as he's going to Jerusalem, they, he speaks the word of God. I'm going to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die, and on the third day rise again. And his, his disciples try to deter him from that. Here, out of love and concern and compassion for Paul, his disciples are trying to do the same, not because the Holy Spirit is directing them to deter him, but because they love him and they don't want to see all of these things that they know are going to happen really happen. So when we continue, we will start with what happens actually in Jerusalem. He's going to have a short visit with James, but then his arrest will come very shortly. And like I said, this will sort of dictate the rest of the book of Acts. So uh, we skirted through some things rather quickly to try to get to this last section. Um, looking at the big picture, I thought maybe I could finish Acts by Easter. I still think that might be possible, but it might be pushing it. We'll, we'll see. Um, and then we'll have a, a little bit of time at the end of the year uh, in the month of May to maybe pick up a topic to maybe go back to this John and his baptism question if we want to revisit it. I talked about doing something on the Holy Spirit, and I can do that as well. My only thought is a couple of weeks is not going to be near enough time to get into that topic. So that might be either a summer class or the fall um, but we'll, you, you let me know. The other big plan or big picture thing that I had in mind, 
it sounds funny to be talking about the next thing when I still have six chapters to go of this, but um, next year I was thinking about doing another book study um, on the book of Exodus. Um, so that's, that's one thought I have. If you have other things that you want to cover in Bible class, just let me know. I'm willing to uh, get those things in or check out those topics as well. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.